Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 48. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And I'm very excited to be talking about The Rocketeer today. This is one of those movies that, when we started this podcast almost a year ago, and we are coming up on our first birthday, and I kind of, this was one that I sort of like had in my mind as a film that would be tailor made for a show like this. Yeah, you're kind of obsessed with this movie. This was a big one for you. I had never seen it, actually, until you showed it to me. Which I kind of can't believe. That you never, you're such a Disney file that you never stumbled across this movie. No, not really. I mean, it wasn't something really that my parents would have showed me as a kid. I mean, not not because of the content or anything, but, you know, I think it was just more aimed at boys. So it never really came across my radar. And it wasn't one, you know, that my brother was into either. So I had never had the opportunity to see it. All right, well, we're going to jump right into it because I feel like we're both going to have a lot of things to say because I grew up with the movie, you not so much, but having seen it recently, and you can very much compare this to some of the more modern-day Marvel films. Absolutely. That I think we're going to have a lot to say, so we're going to go right into it right now. The movie starts with the introduction to Cliff Secord and Peavy, who are testing out their plane that they intend on to race at the Nationals. We are in Los Angeles in 1938, by the way. A gun-filled car chase between the police, the FBI, and a car full of criminals leads to Cliff inadvertently being shot down. One of the crooks stashes away a case inside of one of the planes in a hangar at the airfield, replacing its contents with a vacuum cleaner before being caught by the authorities. Howard Hughes explains to the authorities that the X-3 rocket was destroyed and that he will not build another one and he burns the blueprints after accepting a two-bit job to make money at the air show cliff and pv find the x3 rocket pack that was hidden inside the plane back at the hangar we then see movie star neville sinclair confront the crooks who are unable to get him his rocket and tells them he will double their price if they are able to get it for him He then uh, contacts his goon, Lothar, and instructs him to go visit the driver of the getaway car to find out where the rocket is. After testing the rocket on a statue, Cliff tells Peavy that he wants to use the rocket in the air show to make enough money to repair their plane and go to Nationals. He then picks up his girlfriend, Jenny, an aspiring actress, to see a movie and get some dinner. Cliff tells Jenny that his flight was fine, but his landing was rough. Lothar visits the getaway driver finds out the location of the rocket, and then kills him while he is in his hospital bed. Back at the Bulldog Cafe, Jenny finds out what really happened at the airfield that day and hastily ends her date with Cliff in frustration after he insults her acting career. The next day, we see that PV has made Cliff a helmet for the air show. Cliff then visits Jenny on set of the Neville Sinclair film that she is working on, but accidentally destroys the set and gets Jenny fired. Meanwhile, Sinclair overhears Cliff tell Jenny that he found the rocket and decides he's going to use Jenny to get to Cliff and has her rehired and even gets her a better role on the film. Uh, He then invites her to dinner at the South Seas Club. Later at the air show, the hired crooks, headed by Eddie Valentine, don't find the rocket, 
but they do find Jenny's photograph that Cliff had left inside the plane. Cliff is late for the air show, so his friend Malcolm flies instead, but his inexperience leads to trouble, and Cliff, as the Rocketeer, saves the day and makes national headlines. Uh, Lothar tracks down Cliff and Peavy at their home and attempts to take the rocket, but a shootout with the FBI occurs and Lothar escapes with Peavy's blueprints for the rocket. Cliff and Peavy take the rocket and go into hiding at the Bulldog Cafe. Valentine's men go to the Bulldog, and while roughing the place up, they find Jenny's phone number and find out that she is with Neville at the South Seas Club. Uh, Club. Excuse me. Cliff, in Rocketeer garb, heads to the club to interrupt the goons and save Jenny. He arrives and disguises himself as a waiter and slips Jenny a note to meet him by the fish tank in the club. Cliff then tells Jenny everything and instructs her to leave the club. He then sees that Valentine's men are working with Sinclair. After another shootout, Cliff escapes, but Jenny is captured by Sinclair. He unsuccessfully tries to seduce her, and she knocks him out with a vase and attempts to escape his home and stumbles upon a secret room and finds out that he is secretly working with the Nazis who want the rocket for themselves. Valentine calls Cliff at the Bulldog and threatens to kill Jenny if he doesn't meet them at the Griffith Observatory with the rocket. The FBI takes Cliff to meet with Howard Hughes, who is already speaking to Peavy, who tells Cliff that the Germans want the rocket. Cliff explains that Valentine has Jenny, Sinclair is working with the Nazis, and he must use the rocket one more time. When they do not comply, Cliff escapes to save Jenny anyway. He arrives at the observatory and explains Sinclair's true identity to Valentine, and then Valentine and his men refuse to work with the Nazis and turn on Sinclair, but... He has Nazi soldiers intercept, and he escapes with Jenny on a blimp with Lothar. Cliff pursues the blimp, and after knocking Lothar out, goes after Sinclair. He gives Sinclair the rocket, but not before peeling away a piece of gum that had plugged a bullet hole, causing the rocket to leak fuel. Sinclair attempts to escape on the rocket, which explodes and kills him. Uh, Hughes and Peavy fly by the blimp in one of their planes, which is now exploding, and rescue Cliff and Jenny. Lothar, who is tethered to the blimp, is left to die. Back at the Bulldog, Hughes gifts Cliff with a plane to fly at the Nationals, and Jenny gives Peavy the blueprints to the rocket that she had taken from Sinclair's house. Um, You know, at the time that this movie came out, these period pieces were very popular, You had Dick Tracy come out a couple... Actually, I think this came out in 91. I think Dick Tracy came out in 90. It was either 89 or 90. And that was popular. Obviously, they were trying to, you know, kind of piggyback off of that. The Indiana Jones films had just wrapped up a year or two earlier with their first trilogy with The Last Crusade. Obviously, um, a lot of pro-American, anti-Nazi... sort of speak in those films and even even for a few years these movies were still sort of popular you know i point to a film like la confidential more of a film noir than this this was more of one of those period piece caper films that were very popular that was one of the things that i was immediately drawn to about this movie was just the overall tone i love old movies i love classic hollywood cinema and this definitely has almost that satirical noir that I love about Roger Rabbit. That was going to be the other one way I brought more, up. Yeah, I mean, that's way more of a parody, um, but it definitely reminded me of Dick Tracy. And I think more than anything else, um, 
the director of this film was Joe Johnston, and we talked about him when we reviewed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids because we were very surprised to learn that he went on to do Jumanji and Captain later on Captain America. Right. Um, but he's got such an amazing body of work because I feel like this film most closely resembles Captain America more than anything else. And you can really see where they wanted him to do it after he did this. Um, but he also did October Sky. And from the opening scene where they're in the hangar and the the score that was playing with it, I immediate my head immediately went there before I even knew that he directed it. Um, so... I, I love his style because even though it was recognizable, I don't feel like he ripped off anything else that he's done. No, he he certainly he's versatile in yes. that he can do so many different kinds of films. You know, you just pointed them out. I mean, at the end of the day, even October Sky, to a lesser extent, the one commonality is that they're all adventure films at the root of them. They're all an adventure flick. Yeah, and I mean, you could obviously draw the similarities. October Sky is about rockets. This is similar. Yeah. It's about flight. I mean, obviously, of all the films you mentioned, this is the closest to Captain America, especially with, you know, the anti-Nazi, you know, message of the film. And, and the propaganda. The, right, and, and put the, you know, every dollar that you donate is a bullet in the barrel of your best, best guy's gun. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. obviously, you know, that's similar not just to... The, the films but obviously it was of its time you know setting this film back when it was supposed to take place same thing with Captain America but um, what was also interesting to me is that this film was so ahead of its time because even though it's a period piece this was made in 1991 um, it was adapted from a graphic novel mm -hmm. and I mean that's your Marvel before Marvel was a thing so that was pretty right. amazing to me. And I also like that, um, you know, because it was so geared towards just a couple of shots in the beginning with the planes, um, I think it really harkens to Disney's, I mean, and when I say Disney, I don't mean the company, I mean Walt himself, his uh, interest in, you know, exploration and technology and keep moving forward. Um, so I really like that. I just feel like this was something that like Walt would have definitely approved of. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I think you're certainly right in regards to pointing that out. Um, if, if there are parts of this that is as odd as it sounds, it kind of reminds me of the Carousel of Progress. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of weird, but a little some of the dialogue, it, you know, it's all it's all in that era. It's all in that era, but it is, as you just explained, um, the whole technology and, and the whole keep moving forward, you know, thing that, that Walt Disney had practiced. Um, you know, let's talk about the script for a minute. Um, this, I, I do think that the screenwriting is very good. I think that, for the most part, I don't think the movie gets slow. I think it's paced very well. And I don't really watch any scene here and say that's not necessary. Um, I, I feel like everything serves a purpose somewhere. Yes and no. I agree with you on the pacing. Um, I think the dialogue is great and very of its time. Like, for me, the only thing that was missing was the phrase 23 skadoosh. I would have loved that in there somewhere. Right. But I can live without it. Um, what bothers me more than anything else, there are two points in this film 
where the characters, instead of going back and forth, it relies upon one person to explain the plot point, And it drove me crazy every time we watched this. Uh, one of them is when PV is explaining that the helmet acts as a rudder. And at that point, Cliff is already like running away to, to go you know, he's on to the next thing. And PV's like chasing him and trying to explain that. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we get it. We need to pay attention to that. Thank you. And then the other one is at the very end where the FBI agent, uh, where, where they're having the shootout. And he's like, if you hit the blimp, it's full of hydrogen. We're all going to blow. And it just takes so long to deliver the line. I'm like, dude, you may as well be holding up a cue card that says, hey, folks, important plot point happening right now. You're watching a movie. And you need to know this. Things like that drive me crazy in any movie. But that that's like the one fault that I found with the dialogue. Otherwise, I think it was very true to the era. Yeah, I think that the dialogue is snappy. I do like how tongue-in-cheek it is. Growing up, I loved the Dick Tracy film. Um, and I still do like it a lot. And it had a fantastic cast. But there are parts of that film as I watch it now that go... Either this is almost too silly or this doesn't really hold up. I know that was sort of the style that they were going for. Very much in the this is a comic book come to life. Obviously, there's a big difference between a comic book and a graphic novel. So they weren't necessarily going for that here. You know what I'm saying? Like in the film Creep Show, which I know is like totally different than what we're talking about in terms of genre. But that film... Very stylized, very tongue-in-cheek, sort of like, it's it's like a horror comedy, but it's meant to look like a comic book that jumped onto the screen. Dick Tracy kind of does the same thing. This does so, but in not in the same way. It's not as comical. Well, see, that's the thing. It, it doesn't do it in the same way in that it's bad. Dick Tracy is supposed to be comical. When they introduce... The I'm going to call him Lurch for reasons that I think are fairly obvious. He has no place in this film. We're going, I mean, forget about historical accuracy. I don't know if it's bad makeup or a horrible mask or, or what they were going for. The rocket. Oh, my God. Where's the rocket? It's, it's so bad. It's so bad. It, it takes me right out of the movie every time he comes on the screen. I don't think it's that his makeup is bad so much as his ADR was awful. You know what I'm saying? Like, what, what movie did you watch? I thought that the make. You know what it is? It's the weird. It's weird. The face moves, but the lips don't. That's what I'm saying. You know, like, it's like not the forehead. prosthetics. It's like a whole rubber mask, and it looks terrible. But his eyes, his forehead, even his jaw, everything moves, oh, but the so lips bad. don't move. But I don't think it's I don't think the makeup is as bad as his as the voice work that they did after. Like at times it's just not synced up. I I didn't even notice because the rubber mask is so distracting. You know what he looks like to me? That that movie with Tommy Lee Jones that you like with the 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 house bunny or whatever it is. Oh, when oh, uh, uh Man of the House. Yes. That ridiculous movie that's really not that good, <laughs> but I just laugh every time I see it because it's Tommy Lee Jones. Well, this makes me laugh every time I see it because it's all, and for the, the rest of it, the costuming, the makeup, like everything is so brilliant. And this, it just pulls me from it every time. And like, I, I get it. Dick Tracy was a popular thing, but like 
you weren't going for that much of a parody here. It, it, it just doesn't fit. The other thing with Dick Tracy as well is for the most part, not, not in totality, but it, for the most part, those were face pieces on the actors. They weren't really going for an entire mask with the exception of a couple of characters. So I see where they were drawing influence from Dick Tracy, although Dick Tracy do, did do it better. That's the thing. If they would have just extended either his chin or his nose or his eyebrows, fine. But they did everything and it just makes him look so cartoony. And the funny thing is you do see him without the makeup. He does have a cameo in another part when they're talking about the the gopher mm-hmm. that's him okay you just you, it's impossible to recognize I, I just i it's the lips if it wasn't for the lips i wouldn't think it was that bad i actually think it's not awful i think it's just because his lips don't move either than going up and other than going up and down he just looks like an animatronic but otherwise that's where it's sort of frustrating because as i pointed out everything else is working everything else is moving I, I don't even care so much about the movement. I just think that for such an exceptional job on everything else, the setting, the costuming, they really drop the ball on the makeup. I mean, could they have been doing it satirically? I don't know. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's not a satire. It's not Dick Tracy. It's not who framed Roger Rabbit, which, I mean, although, okay, Roger Rabbit came out later, but like, I don't know. I mean, you're you're you have Howard Hughes as a character in this movie. Well, Howard or um, Roger Rabbit came out before this, and so did Dick Tracy. But the in but you're saying the makeup is better in both of those films. So if you're going to draw influence from them, you have to at least do it as well as they did it. Is what you, is kind of your point? I'm just saying I don't think. Well, yes, if you're if you're going to bother, yes, do it as well. But I'm just saying I don't think this film needed it because you're going. This was. For, forget that it was based on a graphic novel. Like I was saying, you have Howard Hughes as a character. You're going, this is almost a historical fiction. You know, right. when they're at the club, uh, Neville says hi to, I think it was supposed to be Clark Gable and W.C. Fields. So you're you're dropping all of these people that were real. So why do something like that? All right, I'll give you that one. And And... I'm glad you brought up W.C. Fields because I'm going to talk about it in a couple of minutes as we continue to sort of break down the script here. Um, I like the fact that they have a throwaway line early in the movie and they sort of tie it up at the end because as you watch this movie, immediately you think to yourself, how is he not burning alive when he wears this rocket? Yep. And quickly they go, the housing is cold. It runs on alcohol and... It has the double chamber. It was just quick, and they threw it in there, and it was like, oh, all right, they answered that question. But without it having to be some drawn-up... Now, look at the blueprints, Cliff, and this is how it happened. It's very quick, and it's kind of subtle, and it it answers the question, and you move on from it. So, really, that's no longer in your mind as to how he's able to do this physically. How is he able to do this and be alive? But that was better because there was like a back and forth between two characters as opposed to what I was talking about before where it's just like almost one character explaining what's going on to the camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, and I'm glad they took the time to do that because later on he's actually burning pieces of the set. So yeah, it, it would be a question in your mind is how is he not lighting himself on fire? Well, I want to talk about how at times this is the most un-Disney film 
in the history of Disney films. Let's talk about, first off, there are, and, and I've, the, times have changed, so there are certain images people don't want to see anymore, which I understand. There are a lot of swastikas in this movie. Now, it doesn't offend me, and I'll be honest with you, it's my opinion, and you could take it or leave it. You don't have to agree with me. You know, that's, that's everybody's right. I feel like if you're going to make a movie about World War II or taking place around World War II and you're going to use the Germans or the Nazis as an antagonist, this is the imagery. It's what comes with it. I don't, I'm not one of these people that believes that you edit history and get rid of the bad parts. I think that history exists so that you learn from history. I, I don't think that you can just cut out the things that you don't like and pretend that it never happened. I think it's disrespectful to those who paid the ultimate price because of these savage acts. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it, it needs to be in a fictional film. I'm talking about sometimes people like to gloss things over. But if you're going to make a period piece, and, and I'm, when I mean that, I mean in history books. Don't, don't, edit out, don't edit out history books. But if you're going to make a period piece like this film is, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a necessity. They took it out of the Indiana Jones show at MGM. Okay, fine. People are on vacation. They don't want to see no, that. No, you don't want to be reminded, especially fine. because if they're going, you know, if it's like a magical gathering and there's like a multi generational family, you certainly don't want people who lived through this era to be offended by it. Correct. I get that. Right. But looking back on this now, almost 30 years later, I think a movie nowadays, you're not going to see it. Certainly no. not a film that's coming out under the banner of Walt Disney pictures you're not going to see that much nazi or swastika imagery i just don't think it's going to happen no because they got rid of all the donald duck shorts right right the the propaganda films right right and i and that i understand as well but in a way it kind of does date the movie a little bit and it removes the disney feel from the film not only with this, but there were so many gunfights, too. Like, right. not just, I mean, okay, we can make the argument for any of the Avengers movies that there's a lot of explosions, there is a lot of gratuitous violence, sure. But this is like the old-timey, like, Bonnie and Clyde shooting up the with cars. A, yeah, with, with a Tommy gun. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that I was kind of surprised to see. And... Let's talk about the scene with W.C. Fields when Neville Sinclair introduces Jenny Blake to W.C. Fields. The camera supposed to be W.C. Yeah, eyes Fields, up camera. Yeah, supposed to be his eye line pans right down and stares at Jenny at, at Jennifer Connelly's chest. That was surprising. And the, the line that comes with it, he says, I'm doubly charmed. Yeah. I'm like, wow. I mean, here's the thing. I'm not easily offended at all. Um, but that was just surprising to me. I was, And I think it, it's not just that Disney went there, but also that you are 
portraying someone real and it's like wow was that guy that much of a jerk because that's my takeaway from it i know nothing about wc fields right and i, I mean i know the work that he did but like i wondered the same thing like was this his reputation in hollywood exactly especially now because you have a lot of hollywood bigwigs that are taking the fall nowadays it's like you assume stuff like this has been going on forever but yeah i mean was was this how he was? Right, and no, and I'm wondering if Disney really didn't care because Neville Sinclair was supposedly modeled after Errol Flynn, who was accused of being a Nazi spy. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I just... I, I don't know. I'm just wondering if there was a lot of disagreement. Same thing, <laughs> that was one of the things that I was thinking too with Disney's portrayal of the FBI in this one because... That's where this film gets really satirical because I feel like any time the FBI was involved with in anything in this film, it was a blunder. They're just shooting at things, blowing things up, destroying buildings. And I was like, I don't know if this was just to put the film over the top or if Disney really didn't think very highly. They're like the stormtroopers of government officials. Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> I, you know... This movie did not do well at the box office, and we're going to talk about how it performed and what it opened up against later on. But I wonder sometimes if it was a miss because they put it under the banner of Walt Disney Pictures. Like, had this, if this would have been a touchstone film like Roger Rabbit, sure, you know, would it have been better? Would it have been better received? Well, I think a lot of that too does have to do with the fact that they went with an unknown actor. Um, at the time, Billy Campbell, he actually really campaigned for this part. Um, he had read the graphic novels. He got his hair cut to look like like the character. Mm -hmm. And that's what kind of sold Disney on it. Because at the time, Disney wanted a name actor in the part, and their first choice was actually Johnny Depp. Hmm. Ironically, another choice was Kevin Costner, but he was already set to do, um, oh, what were we just talking about before? What, Robin Hood? Yes. Robin Hood, Prince Which of Thieves. Which is what this went up against. Right. Um, so I'm wondering if that had to do with it because you, it, it opened against that movie with a big name in it and this one didn't. But Joe Johnston is actually who pushed for Billy Campbell to be the Rocketeer. I feel like Kevin Costner would have been far too old for this part. Agreed. Johnny Depp would have made sense. I think his age was right. Billy Campbell was 31 years old when he made this movie, but he doesn't look 31. Jennifer Connelly was 20. They don't look like there's an 11-year age gap, though. They look like they're basically the same age. Kevin Costner was too grizzled at that point to pull that off. But I can see Johnny Depp could have been a good choice for this. Emilio Estevez was also in consideration for it. Uh, no, nah, that would have been a miss. Oh. I, Coach that one Bombay I forever. But even still, I just I can't buy him in this role. Johnny Depp, okay, I can I can buy it. Billy Campbell is obviously the Rocketeer that we got. He is the Cliff Secord that we got. We'll talk about the characters in a few minutes, but. I, just, I feel like that would have been a miss, Agreed. Emilio Estevez. Do you have anything else on the script here uh, or the screenwriting before we do move on and maybe talk about these characters a little bit? Well, 
I do want to talk a little bit about the setting too uh, before okay. we move on too much because sure. we've we've discussed you know the era obviously, but I just think that they did such a good job of capturing what LA was like back then. You know, they've got the Bulldog Cafe, which I thought was really cute, and it gave it that small town feel. Um, that also kind of played into where. This was similar to October Sky for me because it was that kind of small town thing. Everybody's championing, championing for you. Um, so I thought that was nice. Um, and and probably my favorite set. Uh, well, I love Neville Sinclair's movie. I think that was really cool. I love that we got a little peek behind the scenes. Although yeah. uh, that takes me out of it a little bit, too, because they do say after the fact, like, this is supposed to be a close set. How Cliff just walks in there into a movie studio to find Jenny is beyond me because even though it wasn't a closed set, they had better security back then. You couldn't just walk onto a lot. But anyway, I digress. My favorite set was probably the, uh, the South sea club. That, that is the most amazing set in this film. Hands down. They, they captured the whole era just in that one room. Like it, it reminded me of, I love Lucy at Ricky's club. And, um, the the songs and the dancing they they really hit the nail on the head and the clamshell opens and oh, there I love she it. is it's so cheesy it's, but it's great but the, but that's places, what it was that's what it yeah places like that existed i thought that they hit the nail on the head with that set yeah no, i thought I that really was liked perfect it. and i do like that they had you know real life actors coming in and out i thought that was a nice touch yeah um i think that the film at times is really like a slice of americana yes I think the way that it's shot, I think the cinematography is great. But I think, you know, people were, they were going to the races. They were going to the airfield. Like, these are things that people used to not take for granted right? back in the day, where it was just a much simpler time. And you kind of had this all-American hero. They didn't know who he was because he had the mask on. But it was like when Cliff went to go pick up the newspaper and you had the two girls there by the newsboy and you have the the news but extra extra read all about it which has been parodied so many times but it still works in this movie and they're like oh he must be so handsome he's a hero and cliff john just has that grin on his face there's just so much about this that is just old school americana to me absolutely you know and just getting a hamburger at the bulldog cafe and half the streets aren't paved i just i love i love the feel of this movie you know we went to riverhead raceway last night out here on the island it was the first time that you had gone out there. I grew up going out there, and it's one of the last small tracks in New York. And I said, places like this are important. It made me feel like I was on vacation in like upstate New York if I was, you know, in the Catskills. Right, or even in the Midwest. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, places like that don't really exist here anymore. And obviously, this time period, we're long removed from it, but I just, I love, I love the feel that this that they that they created here part and parcel to the script and the dialogue and the setting i think that it's just it's just very well done and, and i and save I, for lurch's makeup sure but i feel like you, you know same thing with captain america obviously captain america different in that he was captain america right. he was mr usa but there was that pride, you know what I'm saying? And literally us against the world because of the war that was going on. Not the entire world, but, you know, against 
the Nazis and 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 all of their territories that that they had taken over and had convinced people to join up with them. So there is sort of that, even though we had allies too. Somehow it, it was still us against everyone else. At least that's that's how a lot of people kind of make it out to be. <laughs> I truly believe that this was like Joe Johnston's audition to get that because he captured that feel, that Americana feel. Yeah. And it it played perfectly into Captain America. Let's talk about the cast. Do you want to talk about the cast and the characters? Absolutely. All right. I think that this cast is unbelievable. On paper, the cast is unbelievable. It's fantastic. Right? So you have Billy Campbell, who I think was a great rocketeer, he was a better Cliff C chord. I really, I still, to this day, from the time I first saw this film up until now, every time I watch it, when he is marching at the Griffith Observatory, Observatory towards Timothy Dalton's character, Neville Sinclair, and he takes the helmet off. And it's like the parting of the Red Sea of yeah. all of these gangsters. And there he is. And he has such conviction in his eyes. I almost get goosebumps like it's about to go down. What I like about it, too, is that he's, you know, this isn't a superhero film. Um, I, you know, we've been car- comparing, obviously, a lot to Captain America, but the Rocketeer is not a superhero. And I think what Billy Campbell does so well is portrays it as like the, not the reluctant hero, but just that I'm just a regular Joe kind of guy. And when he puts on the helmet and the jetpack, he knows what he has to do, but it's really more about saving his gal than, you know, I, I mean, he doesn't even really know the bigger picture of what, uh, Neville Sinclair is involved in. Right. He just knows that he's got to save his girlfriend. Exactly. And he does so in a way, like, comparing him to Iron Man, right? Comparing him to Tony Stark. And there are a lot of comparables here. By the way, we talk a lot about Captain America, but you had said when we watched the movie the other night, Howard Hughes could have been Howard Stark. I would love to live in a world where this was like a precursor to Iron Iron Man, because that's it. The overall tone feels like Captain America, but the suit itself... um, it definitely it definitely feels like Iron Man. I mean, he has the jetpacks in his suit. Right. That's not to say though, I do love the design of the jetpack because that to me you could go and see in Tomorrowland somewhere. Right. Or go see it in a museum somewhere where they would have had it at like the World's Fair of, you know, this this is how we're going to travel in 50 <laughs> years. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's cuz that's what it was so hyper stylized and that's what they thought the future was going to look like, you know, like something out of the Jetsons. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and obviously here we are and we can't even get a car to go past a hundred thousand miles before it breaks down, much less have a jet pack and a flying <laughs> vehicle. But, um, yeah, I just, there are a lot of comparables there between the two films. I think you can make those, com- those comparisons, but he plays him so completely different, obviously two completely different characters, but he's humble He's the boy next door. And I love that about him. He's not some angsty teenager. He's not some um, crazed lunatic who watched his parents get shot in every film and every television show and every sequel and every prequel. I'm looking at you, Batman. (laughs) He's just the average Joe who has an extraordinary job 
and has an extraordinary persona completely unselfish no and i love the line where he's like uh he says something about having holes in his pockets. It just kind of drives the point home that he is, you know, a regular guy. And I think that that makes for such great conflict in this story with Jenny Blake, because she's an aspiring actress. And there's a few times where, um, he trivializes her career actually, because, you know, she's excited that she's starting to get, you know, more speaking lines and move up in her career and there's a director that's interested in her and he's like well you missed my flight for to go play some scenery in the background and um it's very of the time it reminds me a lot of like the Ricky and Lucy relationship where he never wants her in show business you know Ricky never comes out and says get in the kitchen and make me a sandwich but you know it's what he believes and um and I love I love Lucy don't get me wrong but um this is kind of the same thing is that he is putting down her career and it was very much of that time but it it definitely works for the story to move it forward that's what I think I like about him too is he's an imperfect character Mm. at times he has extraordinarily low self-esteem to talk about the line when he's talking to PV and all he wants to do is impress Jenny because in his mind she's a 10 out of 10 and he's a broken down basically out of work pilot and he recognizes that but then at the same time will flip and snap at her and basically say you don't have a real job meanwhile the day before he was waiting in line almost to put on clown makeup to make 15 bucks at the air show. Well, I think that's it. He's insecure. Totally insecure. He doesn't want her, you know, he wants to be the breadwinner, but he knows that's not going to happen in his current situation at his job. Right. But he is an imperfect character that becomes the perfect hero. And I do think that Billy Campbell played him spot on. It was great casting, um, as is Jennifer Connelly, uh, as Jenny Blake. I think their chemistry together was fantastic. Yes. I think she looks every part of that 40s era. Um, Probably her and Haley Atwell are the only ones who really pull it off well because I feel like any time they do a movie like this, all they do is like put the actress's hair in that that curled style where they flip the bangs up in the front and they're just supposed to look the part. But like sometimes it just doesn't work when you do it with a modern day actress. And I feel like Jennifer Connelly really achieved the look and she she just got it you know what i think it is with jennifer connelly too i think modern day actresses obviously the way that people groom themselves now very different from the way they did it back in the 1930s Mm. now you have a lot of these actresses and it's the thing is to have these pencil thin um eyebrows no that was the 90s thing hon well to me though isn't it isn't it still that though? I mean, come on. No. But but no, it's not. Well, hear me out though. I think the very very thick. I'm not going to call them bushy eyebrows because that doesn't sound attractive on a female. But your very thick eyebrows. That's still not necessarily a thing. No, not like '80s Madonna eyebrows. No. But it works for Jennifer Connelly because she had that going on in this movie. I think Haley Atwood kind of has it going on too, certainly in Captain America. So I think that's part 
part and parcel why they look the part because the way that they do their hair, the way that they do their makeup, the way that they're just maintained in general, it works. It doesn't look like you've taken somebody from 2018 or 2019 or 2010 or whenever the movie came out and stuck them in a 1930s film and it just doesn't work. Right. That's what I'm I'm trying to think of like a specific example, but like without being able to pick someone off the top of my head, I feel like, you know, you, you'll look at a film and it's just like, oh, there for argument's sake, oh, there's Jennifer Aniston with her hair rolled up. You know, like it's still going to look like Jennifer Aniston. I think Jennifer Connelly, the way that she just carries herself, was able to pull this off. And what I really like and applaud Disney for is that they didn't go with your typical Hollywood starlet. They didn't go with the blonde hair, blue eyed actress. Um, I think part of the reason is because in the graphic novel, um, Jenny's name was actually Betty Page, like the pinup girl. So I feel like Disney didn't want to touch that and have Betty Page in the film. Um, but Jennifer Conley does kind of look like her too. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because that probably was their intention and then W.C. Fields' eye line goes, hello. Well, yeah. But but I, I get what you're saying though. And I think that she looks the part. She played it well. She was great casting. She had fantastic chemistry, I agree with you, with um, with Billy Campbell. But nobody had the chemistry with Billy Campbell that Alan Arkin had. And I love Alan Arkin in everything. I loved him in Argo most recently, but I think that he is a brilliant actor. I love him as PV. They love have, their relationship. They have this father-son thing going on, and we don't really know what their relationship is. Right, other because than, they live together, but they never really come out and say that. Right. And obviously it's not his father, but he has sort of a paternal link. A feels. mentor, a father figure. Yeah. But it, it works so well for this. Right. And you know what? I kind of like the fact that they left it there and we didn't need to delve into because this happens a lot. In yeah. these, especially in these comic or graphic novel films that are more modern day. They spend so much time delving into backstory that it becomes it becomes boring to me. Agreed. Like, I don't need to know how Cliff became a pilot. I don't need to know why he's poor. I, that's, that's really it. it. It comes through that he loves flying. That's all I need to know. That's fine. Right. And it's him and PV and they work together and PV's his mechanic and they just love each other and it's great. And it's so genuine. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it really is just even the way that they look at each other. Which almost sounds like I'm romanticizing them, which is not the case. But, you know, it just it feels like they had known each other their entire lives. Yeah, it really does come through well. I, I don't know if they were like friendly in real life, but it just came through on screen. And in some cases, I would say, well, that's Alan Arkin carrying the scene. But it's it's not, though. It's it's no, Billy it's Campbell. Both of them. It's, yeah. It really is both of them. Timothy Dalton. Your boy. Now, you, I have mentioned on this show before that I love James Bond films. I have all of them on Blu-ray. And the two Bond films that Timothy Dalton made were really, really good movies. I think that they are underrated in terms of the you know, whole catalog of James Bond films. Obviously, he only played him twice. They decided to recast because the third movie that he was supposed to be in went into production hell. 
He only got cast in the film because they were going to cast Pierce Brosnan. And Remington Steele got renewed after it was supposed to be canceled. And they scrambled to cast a Bond and they fell on Timothy Dalton. He was unhinged as James Bond. And he sort of brings that here. But as much as I love him as as that Bond character... And I love what he did with the character. I think I love him more as a villain. Because he is such a slime ball, but he's very savvy. Yes. And he is a Casanova. In fact, you you see when when she um activates the fake wall, it's the, the book is a Casanova book. Right. And she uses it against him too. That's yes. the brilliant part, is that even though he is this evil person. He's still trying to seduce her. And the way that Jenny Blake gets out of that situation is, you know, she plays right into his hand. She knows exactly what he's trying to do. And he thinks that she's falling for it when she's not. Um, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show that, um, you know, you feel that this film is really tongue in cheek at times. I think that all comes from him because he's got, you know, he does carry himself as that Casanova, but he's also very sarcastic at times and um, he's very cunning. And I I love the way that he portrays Neville Sinclair because and he does capture that old Hollywood feel, too. Well, and he looks old Hollywood. He does. You know, he's not this, you know, ripped, chiseled guy, but he looks like your old classic Hollywood good-looking guy that they would stick your in every man, film. Yeah. He's your leading man, exactly. What I do love, too, is that they gave him the line of I do my own stunts, because up until Daniel Craig, I'm sure you know this, he was the only Bond to actually do his own stunts. Yeah. So, a nice little tip of the cap there. And he's so, as you said, he's cunning, and he's suave, and he knows exactly what he's doing, because there's an interaction between him and Eddie Valentine where Valentine basically says, I'm going to rat you out to the authorities. And he goes, who are the, who do you think they're going to believe a two bit crook or yeah. the number three box office draw in America? Like he knows exactly what he's doing. And he has, he's got step one, two and three of route a one, two and three of B of C of D like he just knows already how he's going to get out of every situation. Yeah. An honorable mention to uh, Valentine, played by Paul Sorvino. He's been... I, I've seen him do the gangster thing before, but he's great every time. And you know who I love is Margot Martindale? Yes. She's great in this film as Millie. My she's favorite role of hers was Dexter, but she's so... You know, she really has that maternal... She portrays a, a mother figure in almost everything she's in because she is that way in Dexter too. Um, but it works. She's great in this. Yeah. Um, let's talk. There's no musical numbers, but the score. The score is just fantastic. I think that it it not only fits the time, but I just think it fits the movie. Definitely. You know what I'm saying? Like that whole the world of aviation and it captures that americana feel too it captures the americana it's an epic score and it plays hand in hand the music in each scene to me is as important 
as any actor or any dialogue. This the the score in this film acts as another character in driving the film forward in every in every single scene. I think that's also a credit to Joe Johnson because I feel like that's become his calling card. Is that you know when you when you think of the rest of his work like Honey I Shrunk the Kids the the music that goes with the shrinking machine or Jumanji you know when there's the drums that yeah. follow follow the game around. Um, I, I feel like this is, you know, similar vein because it, it just fits so perfectly. Absolutely. You're right. And Captain America, same way. He's oh, just consistent. Totally consistent. So this movie, when it opened, opened behind Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and City Slickers. City Slicker. Oh, my God. Which I think, number one. City Slickers is a great movie. Well, this didn't stand a chance behind that. It just didn't. Well, I think City Slickers was probably a surprise hit for a lot of people. I don't think anybody at Disney thought for a second that City Slickers would outdraw the Rocketeer. Probably, yeah. But here's the thing. I think this movie was sort of doomed from the start in terms of its performance at the box office. Because it, it got great reviews from the critics. Here are the problems that this film had. Number one, you released it under Walt Disney Pictures, not Touchstone. Disney was trying to draw in a teenage crowd. That's who they were trying to appeal to. So why this film opened under the banner of Walt Disney Pictures, I don't really understand. That's number one. Number two, you opened this film against Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Big A-list actor. The, the Brian Adams song from that film was all over Top 40 right, radio. Right, right, right. And it's another adventure film. So you're taking your adventure film with a great cast, although not a known front man. Even Jennifer Connelly was not terribly well known at the time that this movie came out. No, this really, was very early on in her this career. Was, this was really more people knew who Timothy Dalton and Alan Arkin are. But people who were going to go watch... Um, Kevin Costner play Robin Hood. You know they're not going to go and see. Oh, I want to see Timothy Dalton play the villain in this movie instead. That's a. I'll go see that next weekend. Well, I think because I think they do draw from the same audience. I think their target demographic was the same. Right, but they also back in the early '90s didn't release films the way that they do now. Where you know Disney's got its slate of movies coming out a year ahead of time. And you know when the next Marvel's coming out, when the next animated remake is coming out. They didn't do it like this back then. So other studios didn't really know what they were up against for opening weekend. You know, it's not like Disney knew, like, okay, I almost just used Fox as an example. That's silly. Uh, It's not like they knew necessarily what Paramount was going to release or what Universal was going to release and say, all right, well, they're doing an action, so we should do a comedy and split the audience. Right. Sometimes Disney doesn't necessarily open up against the proper competition. I mean, it's well, sort now of, it doesn't matter. Now it doesn't matter. Um, but I think it was wasn't it the Great Mouse Detective that was outperformed? Um, again, it was a the Don Car- Bluth. It was, it was a American Tale. American yes. Tale, mm-hmm. and the Black Cauldron went up against the Care Bears movie and lost. But that was really more. That was more a knock at how bad the Black Cauldron was, and we reviewed it 
earlier on on the show. Um, I think I want to say that was within our first ten or twelve episodes. I think so. We it was also, like in the first couple of months that we yeah, did the show, like and, in, in and the we, first three months. Yeah, and we also spoke about it when we reviewed. Um, the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty, and we had the interview with Randy Cartwright. You guys can go back and listen. That's in the back catalog as well. They both came out around the same time. But um, they're not known for being able to stage their films properly against who they are and who they are not going to open up against. Because a movie like Great Mouse Detective, great movie, didn't do as well at the box office because it opened against a bigger draw. Right. In this case, this is a great movie, I know I'm burying the lead, although really, am I at this point? This is a great movie that opened up against another great movie. But the other movie had far more weight behind it than this one did. Plus, if you look at the overseas release, in the UK, this film only showed on 250 screens. Which is really weird because Timothy Dalton is a British actor. And he was James Bond. Right. Like, you would think that would carry the weight over there. Not at all. Wow. But it only shows on 250 screens before it gets pulled. Well, anyway, um, with all that being said, I think we're good for our final synopsis on this one. One more thing I want to hit on. Okay, go for it. Um, Because it is great. And, you know, we we talked about how great the sets, the costuming all were, except for Lurch. Um, the other big miss was Timothy Dalton's death at the end of it. Don't get me wrong, Neville Sinclair got what was coming to him, but the effects were pretty darn terrible. In that specific scene, they weren't great. So here's the thing. I think that the special effects are still pretty good, although slightly dated. That's They're a one little of those... primitive, but the the flight scenes are great, except for that one. Yeah, and I didn't talk about that scene either. You want to talk about how this movie at times is like the most un-Disney movie, Disney movie of all time? Mm-hmm. He's burning alive. He's His body is on fire, and he's burning alive as he screams. See, I'm not even thinking about that because the effects are so bad it takes away from it. I also do get distracted um, because at the end he lands on the Hollywood land sign and then the letters L-A-N-D fall, which is true that that happened in history. It used to be Hollywood land and now it's Hollywood, but that didn't happen until 1949. So this was way earlier if it was supposed to be 1938. They took a little liberty there with the historical accuracy on that one. But I, yeah, I mean, I can overlook that because I do like, you know, all of these plants of, you know, actual people. And, you know, I I like that it, it went a little bit the historical fiction route. Okay. Um, so in conclusion, in conclusion for me, I wish I had grown up on this one because I really enjoy it now, but there are those couple of things that I don't think I'm being nitpicky about, I think are just out and out bad that take me out of it. Had I grown up on this film, I would just easily look the other way. But otherwise, I love the tone. I love the comedy. I, I just love, love, love the sets. That That's my favorite part about it. Yeah, I think the sets and the practical effects are very good. I love the costumes. I love the cinematography. I think by far, this is one of the best graphic novel film interpretations, you know, in totality. I think it's completely underappreciated. And I think that 
this movie flopping is terribly sad as it deserved to at least get a proper sequel, if not a full trilogy. Now, with that being said, our feeling about of, of it aside, does the film hold up? That's a question That's we haven't question. really asked in a while on this show. Does the film hold up? And uh, here's here's my take on it. I think they I think the overall message of the film holds up. I think the hero holds up. I think the sets and the costumes and the dialogue hold up. The special effects at times are shaky. I think it does date the film. I talked about a lot of the imagery before. It does not bother me. But I know nowadays in in a hyper alert and a hypersensitive society, I talked about it before, people try to edit history. I don't know that in this case, the film holds up. Because I think that modern audiences that are used to this edited history of the world, I think if they see some of the imagery in this film... Because it's, it's there, and it's blatant. I mean, mm. there are propaganda films. There's swastikas everywhere. I think people, and maybe young, maybe the younger audience that's watching this film for the first time, I think they're going to be taken aback by a lot of this imagery because of the way that Hollywood and society in general is handling that very rough history now. And I think that they're going to be taken out of it. I think the other problem is that if you were to sit, for argument's sake, a 10-year-old down to watch this movie, and that 10-year-old has seen Iron Man, he's going to think The Rocketeer is a joke because it's a jetpack. It's not a suit. I don't think that a kid would appreciate that this is a period piece I don't think that they would get the era that it's trying to capture. I think if I think they're expecting a superhero movie and it's just not one. Even even if you know going in that it's not part of the Marvel universe, I think you're going to hear graphic novel and that's automatically where your head is going to go. And because we're so used to the modern day Marvel movies, this just doesn't hold a candle. Which in a, in a child's eyes, because to me, I think this is one of Joe Johnson's finest films. I think that this movie, for me, I think this movie is as good as any Marvel movie. But you're right. Because of it's going to be age, lost on a child. It's going to yes. be lost on somebody of the younger generation, somebody of the younger audience. And I think that that's a terrible shame because... This movie is very good. We also live in a society now where, I mean, look, we come on here every week and we review films and we talk about them and we're out there in, in the social media world. We're out there on the internet or on your iPhone, whatever podcast device, whatever podcast platform you use, we're out there. But we like to think that we look at these things, you know, fairly. I think we judge these films sort of fairly. We live in a society that, other than being hypersensitive and hyper-aware of the world around them, sometimes to uh, not to their benefit, I should say, um, 
We also live in a world where people like to have keyboard courage and people have blogs and podcasts and YouTube channels that get a ton of hits because they like to target cult classics. Mm. And go, I don't understand this. Why is this such a thing? I mean, how many of these quote-unquote reaction videos do you see on the internet where people are just shredding apart something that was once universally loved? to get some- Like Friends. Like right. when Friends hit Netflix and people, you know, millennials started watching it, they didn't get it. They said it was like a misogynistic show. Right. Now, some people do that because they live in a world where they're out there on a soapbox. But there are other people that are out there because they care about getting the cheap click, the cheap comment, the cheap like. Sure. And I feel like because this movie is a cult classic, because certain elements of it are outdated, because I think that it was I think it was released under the wrong banner. I think that this movie is an easy target for those people. I'm not going to name any specifically because that's not my responsibility. But you guys know who these people are. You've seen them. You've read them. You've watched them. We all have. I think this movie is a prime target for them. And I think that you're going to see people come after this movie soon for two reasons. Number one, we're getting a Rocketeer animated show on Disney Junior. Right. Which... I'll be honest with you. I'm very interested to see how that one's going to work because how can you take a movie like this and we just talked about everything that's in it and you're somehow going to make a Disney Junior show out of it. Now, obviously, a lot of that savage imagery is not going to be a part of the show. I'm just wondering how they're going to transfer it over. Well, they may not be sticking to the source material at all other than the jetpack. And and they're not. They're not. Billy Campbell did get cast in it, but it's a young girl is playing the Rocketeer. But I'm kind of excited for it. It looks like it's going to be a fun show. Yeah, it's him and um, Kathy and Jimmy, I think, right? Yes. Yes, from Hocus Pocus. I like her, and And I'm glad to see her in another Disney entity. Yeah, and we did review that one uh, earlier on in the run of this show as well. You can go back and listen to that one. There's also been talk for a couple of years that they were going to do a sequel slash reboot and Blake Griffin, the NBA player was going to have money behind it. Three years later, we have nothing. I don't know. I think that they're going to take the animated show and based upon how well that is received, will probably dictate whether or not we get another Rocketeer movie. But I think at this point, it's not a sequel. It's a reboot. I just don't see how you can sequel this movie at this point. I agree, especially because it is a period piece. Right. So there, to me, there's really no point in doing a sequel. Um, but yeah, I guess if I had to sum it up, do I like the movie? Yes. Does it hold up? No. Unfortunately, no. I think there are elements that don't hold up. And it's a damn shame. Yeah. Because I really think that Otherwise, the movie is great, and I think anybody should see it. But we want to know what you guys think. Do you like this movie? Do you hate this movie? Do you think this movie holds up? Are you going to slam this movie to get a quick, cheap like on Facebook? You let us know right now on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, at Monoreal Radio. Before we get to the news this week, we did have a contest that we were running for the last two weeks. Yes, on our review of The Lion King, we announced a giveaway for the Jungle Book DVD. Yes. Not John Favreau's, the original animated one. Correct. I think that was a DVD Blu-ray combo pack. It is. It yes. is. Right. And we took entries for the last couple of weeks, 
And we have our winner, Tom L. from Long Island. Hey, that's where we're from. Tom, you are the winner of the Jungle Book Blu-ray DVD combo pack. Thank you so much for entering as well as everyone else. Tom, we will get in touch with you via your social media. Let's talk about a couple of a couple of things in the news this week. Starting with this lunatic <laughs> and she is that went on this rant and rave. This has gone viral. And it's funny because I actually saw this post before it went viral. Yeah, but you want to talk about people with keyboard courage trying to get a cheap like. Yeah. And attention. And unfortunately, in she sp- did. It, it, she, she did. In spite of better judgment, we gave her what she was looking for. Um, the woman that went on the rant and rave about how millennials without children should be banned from visiting Walt Disney World. How insane is that? Disney World is a place for everyone. Any Disney park. I mean, for God's sake. She obviously misses the point of what Disney is supposed to be. Walt Disney, in his speech at the opening of Disneyland, that said, Disneyland is your land. It's for adults and for children. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. But... The intent was that it was for everybody. But her opinion is that if you do not have children and are not a child, you should, not that you shouldn't go, you should not be allowed in the front door. Okay. We're almost a year into this podcast, and I pride myself on being a fiery Italian who has managed not to curse not once on this show. Please don't start now. Please I'm going to try really hard. Please don't start now. We are, we're a family program. I'm so angry. I am so angry at this crazy lady. No, not lady. Th- that's giving her too much credit. Anyway, here's the thing. I love and respect Disney as a company. That goes without saying Obviously, we have this podcast. We worship the movies. We love going to the parks. So this is not meant to sound negative. Disney does not care how they get your money so long as they get it. So they really don't care who is buying tickets to their parks. As for targeting the millennials, what is so wrong with kids who had great memories of Disney as a child and memories with their family wanting to go back and experiencing that later on? Not to mention, Disney has also made an entire business off of weddings now. Who's getting married there? Millennials. Why? Because it's what they grew up on. Like, how dare you i understand if you don't want people without children going into a Chuck E. cheese because that's weird and creepy okay fine but if i want to go to disneyland as an adult and enjoy not only their wonderful customer service but the excellent food and the drinks which okay i understand maybe that's where the issue is because some people who are of drinking age and are not there with kids are getting a little out of control i will give you that one but you can't tell me that after i turn 18 i can't go on haunted mansion ever again in my life yeah i totally agree with you people go there because of it the thing is at the end of the day disney is an escape we talked about it before 
certain imagery being pulled out of the Indiana Jones stunt show. People don't want to see certain things because Disney's an escape. It's where you go to forget about your problems. It's, it's the happiest place on earth. Be happy, crazy. Yeah. This is somebody that's mad that she had to wait online an extra 45 minutes to meet Anna and Elsa because somebody who was Disney bounding or was doing a cosplay was there and she got her day held up and that's what she was upset about or couldn't get on a bus or whatever it is. It's just it, I understand, especially because we go a lot and I run and I'm going to miss it by literally two days this year and I want to punch a hole in the wall. Um, the food and wine half or the wine and dine half marathon but we will be at the food and wine festival and look we've been going for a long time together we've seen how the food and wine festival has especially on the weekends turned into a college party i get that that was the point i was going to make too yeah millennials are not what's ruining it you're drinking teams with your matching shirts that's what ruins it yeah don't be that person but you're going to be that person anyway please don't you ruin it for everybody, but you're going to do it anyway. I get that. However, we are still, as we sit here, it's the end of July 2019. We are still months away. We're about eight weeks away from the start of the, of the Food and Wine Festival. So you are not affected by this. So where is this coming from? It's coming from you didn't have a good time because you had to wait a long time because you went to Disney World in the summer when the kids were off from school and everybody goes to Disney World because all the kids are off from school and you didn't have a good time. So you decided to attack an entire generation of people, most of which treat the parks and the cast members and fellow guests with respect. You just said it right there, though. You went to Disney World and didn't have a good time. You're the problem. Yeah. I, don't, don't get me wrong. If you've never gone to Disney World before and you mistimed your trip, yeah. I can understand where you would have a miserable time. I also understand where people get like overwhelmed by the thought of like having to book the trip and plan it. And, you know, that is where I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but for somebody like me who works with Magical Vacation Planner as a concierge to help people book, you know, I, I get where people think it's a hassle. Right, especially because Disney's not cheap, especially if you're going with a family of four, five, six people. I get it. But with all of that being said, this just sounds like somebody that's unhinged and went on the internet because it was an easy place for her to vent. No, and you know what? I really hope that the goal was not to get invited back and comped. And I really hope that Disney didn't fall for that. What did you guys think when you read this? <laughs> Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. And I didn't drop an F-bomb. Good for you. I'm, I'm thrilled. Thank you for that. You've done me a favor. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, there was some sad news um, this past weekend. Yes, we're very sorry to report the passing of Rosie Taylor, who was the voice of Minnie Mouse for over 30 years. Yeah, and uh, 75 years old, um, sort of young by, by most standards nowadays, um, but terribly sad. And I think, you know, anybody in the Disney community, it's, you know, us specifically because we kind of have this platform here. Uh, we grieve for her family. We thank her for what she did. And uh, may she rest peacefully. She is, of course, a Disney legend. Um 
Well, that's going to do it for us this week. But uh, if you want to go to Disney World or Disneyland, especially and have a, if you're a millennial, especially if you're a millennial <laughs> and you want to drive uh, the psycho crazy, um, Jackie can help do that for you. Let's raise hell. Get in touch with me either directly through social media or you can email me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Don't bring your drinking team shirts to the Food and Wine Festival. I beg of you. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.